And well, if you will take your copy of the Bible and open to Philippians chapter 1, our sermon passage today is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 20. My name is Stephen Story. I serve as the executive pastor here at the church. And today is the second week in our seven-week series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you've been here, if you're a member of the church, you know that our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. In the last half of this year, we are planning to consider from Scripture specifically what it means to be disciples who enjoy the gospel. The first way we're going to do this is to look at the letter to the Philippians, where the idea of joy is a prominent theme. So we're taking seven weeks uh, to move fairly quickly through this letter. Uh, We will not be expositing every single verse in Philippians, but we are going to hone in on the passages where joy is a very prominent theme. And I would encourage you, take this opportunity over the next several weeks to really soak in the book of Philippians. Consider reading through Philippians every week, or maybe read it every day. You can, you can read this letter in about 15 minutes. You can listen to an audio recording in about 15 minutes. Uh, so it's a, it's a fairly short letter. Uh, consider reading it every, every morning. Uh, husbands, you might consider at dinner each night reading a chapter of Philippians with your family following dinner. Read through this letter repeatedly and add to that the sermons over the next several weeks. And by the time we get to late August and the end of this series, you will be much more familiar uh, with this piece of Scripture. Remind you from last week, uh, Pastor Jesse took us through the first 11 verses of the book, and we considered the idea that in the Bible, joy is not an emotion, but it is an attitude that is commanded and expected, and that is granted to those of us who are trusting in Christ. So we think about joy, and we might ask ourselves, well, where does joy come from? And last week we saw that one of the sources of our joy is the local church, what we're doing here today, the gathering of believers in the local church. This is one of the sources of joy for the Christian. And today we will see a second source of joy, that we as Christians receive joy when Christ is proclaimed. We receive joy, we increase in joy as the gospel advances and as Christ is proclaimed. So let me read through our text together, and then we'll pray, and uh, we'll jump in to consider this passage this morning. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for how you used him to, uh, under the inspiration of your Spirit, to pen so many of the words that we have for us in Scripture. We thank you for this letter to the Philippians. We ask now that you would give us insight as we consider your word and that you would apply these truths to our hearts. I pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul models for us in these verses that we as Christians can find joy in three types of situations where we might not expect to find joy. We can find joy, first of all, in our own suffering. Second, we can find joy even when other Christians fall short. And third, we can find joy even when our own future seems bleak. So these are the three ideas we want to look at. That's our outline for this morning. The first thing we see here is that we who are Christians can have joy even in our suffering. This is found in verses 12 through 14. Look at, look at the passage here. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing to a group of Christians in another city. The opening verses of his letter we looked at last week, and we saw that he expressed thankfulness for the Philippian church. And now Paul's next concern in this letter is to give kind of an update on himself personally and specifically to uh, help the Philippians think properly about Paul's current situation. He says, I want you to know something. The stuff that has happened to me that you've heard about, it's not what it appears to be. Let me tell you what's really going on. So what has happened to Paul? Well, the Philippians know as they receive this letter that Paul is in prison. Generally speaking, being in prison is not a, a good thing. Typically means a person has done something wrong. Whether they've actually done something wrong or not, it certainly means that things aren't going according to plan. Paul is in prison not for doing anything wrong, but for preaching about Jesus. So in Paul's case, you might imagine the Philippians thinking, you know, it's too bad about Paul. He was really starting to make some headway for Christianity, but then he got arrested and and now everything's kind of stalled out. But Paul says, actually, no. That's not the case at all. I want you guys to know this, that what has happened to me has really served to move the ball forward. My imprisonment has resulted in Christ being proclaimed, and that's cause for rejoicing. So Paul's tapping into a a general truth about how God works, and he's applying it to his own situation. God loves to lead his people into situations that seem like a dead end so that he can bring himself glory in a way that only he can do so that his purposes are advanced against all odds. You might think of Joseph in the Old Testament, sold into slavery by his brothers, sold to slavery in Egypt where he was falsely accused and he was thrown into prison. And then God used those things to put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt and to save Egypt and to save the the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel from starvation. 
to raise up a people for himself, the people through whom the Messiah would come. And so later in his life, Joseph can say to his brothers that you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. We think of the people of Israel stuck in the wilderness with the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other side. Looks like they're out of options. And then God leads them through the sea itself and establishes his covenant with them. You might think of Esther in exile with the rest of God's people, taken from her family and her people against her will before being made queen and the one who would stop the planned genocide of the Jewish people. A few weeks ago, Pastor John preached about the story of Ruth and her suffering in a foreign land with no hope before marrying Boaz and becoming uh, the many times great-grandmother of Jesus. Of course, we think of Jesus himself, falsely accused and arrested, enduring a mock trial before being brutally executed, exactly as God had planned to advance his plan of salvation. So, So Paul thinks back to how God has worked in the past, and he's able to see himself, he rightly sees himself in this line of uh, how God works with his people. This is the way God works to advance his purposes. And Paul can say here with certainty that what has happened to me has really served to move the ball forward to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see here that Paul's in prison, but over in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul gives us a little more detail on the things that he endured throughout his ministry as the gospel advanced. And he summarizes there some of his struggles in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. But Paul knows that that really served to advance the gospel. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, but this really served to advance the gospel. Once I was stoned, but that too served to advance the gospel. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And all of this, in Paul's mind, it really served to advance the gospel, which was the whole point all along. Paul's in prison here. His, his ministry plans have ground to a halt. He can't go on any more grand missionary adventures. And he wants the Philippians to know without a doubt that in spite of this, the gospel is gaining ground. Not not just surviving, but advancing. So this is not when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. This is not just trying to be an optimistic, glass half full type of person. No, this is the Apostle Paul absolutely convinced of the providential sovereignty of God. This is Paul treasuring the proclamation of Christ to such a degree that he rejoices any time, in any way it's advancing, regardless of what it means for him. There are, I'm sure, many, many types of suffering and difficulty represented here in this room today. I don't know what your suffering looks like. Maybe it's chronic illness or disability or failing health. Maybe it's the loss of a job or abandonment by your spouse or a rebellious child or depression or miscarriage or any one of a thousand things. 
And these things are not good. We don't rejoice in suffering itself. But if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, might it be that what has happened to you in the, in the loving and kind, providential hands of your Father, it might somehow be used to advance the gospel. It's hard to believe, but that's how God works. Maybe that's already happened. Maybe you can look back at your past trials the, the way that Paul does and see how God has used the things you've been through, not simply for good, but even more pointedly to, to direct other people to Jesus. Maybe you can see that in your own situation. Maybe that hasn't been the case to this point. Maybe you have no idea why you're suffering as you are, and you can't see uh, any good coming from it at all. Well, think about how, how might you now, from this point forward, use the difficult circumstances in your life to exalt Christ, to point other people to Him. You know, a couple of things are true simultaneously of Paul's situation. On the one hand, God sovereignly put Paul in prison for the sake of the gospel. We can assume if, if it was up to Paul, he would not be here in jail. He'd be out somewhere else preaching the gospel. So God had a hand in putting Paul where he is. At the same time, humanly speaking, Paul chose to act when he found himself in this situation. He chose to act in such a way as to point others to Christ. Paul did not just slump down in his prison cell and say, well, I guess God gets glory from this somehow. Now, we, we actually get the sense here that Paul chose to evangelize his prison guards. Anyone else he could talk to? Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul should not be in prison thinking about what is right and just. He hasn't done anything wrong, but he is in prison. He's been proclaiming this message that a man who was executed by the Roman government was the Son of God and has been raised from the dead and promises new life and eternal salvation to any who will follow him. That's why Paul is in prison. What does he do? He chooses to keep telling others this message, even the very guards who are imprisoning him unjustly. It's interesting, too, there's no indication that uh, the imperial guard here, that they believe or receive this gospel message. He doesn't talk about that. He talks about this group separately from other Christians. It seems that the very fact that they are hearing means that the gospel is advancing. The very fact that they know that he's in prison for preaching this message about Jesus, that in itself means the gospel is advancing. You know, we, we shouldn't think that if people don't receive the gospel message we proclaim to them, then that means that somehow the gospel has failed or somehow the gospel is not moving forward. No, that's, that's not the way Paul thinks about it. The very fact that Jesus is proclaimed, that in itself is the gospel advancing. So, among the imperial guard and among all the rest, that's one way the gospel is advancing. Paul mentions a second in verse 14. He says, most of the brothers, so now this is Christian specifically, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's able to see that his own suffering in jail, his own confinement, the limitations put on him that keep him from ministering as he would like to, 
those things have had the effect of making other Christians more bold to tell people about Jesus without fear. As we'll see down in verse 18, this is where Paul's joy comes from, knowing that Christ is being proclaimed. And in his imprisonment, Paul leads the way in showing other Christians how to be bold for the sake of Christ, how to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, through his example, don't be afraid. Here's how you do it. I wonder if sometimes we might underestimate the role that we can play in encouraging each other just through ordinary, mundane obedience and faithfulness to Christ. Paul models for others around him what it looks like to exalt Christ while you're stuck in a prison cell. Now, that might seem a little remote to us, but there were other Christians around Paul for whom this was a very real threat. There were other Christians who legitimately feared that if they told other people about Jesus, they might find themselves in the same mess that Paul's in, stuck in a prison cell. And so Paul says, through his example, don't be afraid. Here's how you do it. Did you ever think about the fact that as as we live in community together in the church, God might use you to quietly model for another Christian. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ as a full-time mom with young kids. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ as a single adult who longs to be married but isn't. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ while you go through cancer treatments. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ, you parent a rebellious child. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ as a medical professional with an impossible schedule. Here's what it looks like to exalt Christ as a student, as an empty nester, as a retiree. Whatever situation you're in, seek to faithfully exalt Christ in that context for the sake of other Christians. Be faithful. Lead the way. Perhaps God will use you to embolden others as we together follow Christ. And if you're not sure what it looks like, say, this situation I'm in, I have no idea what it looks like to exalt Christ at this point in my life. Ask someone else in the church. Let them minister to you in that way. Now, Paul is mature enough, he's humble enough that his joy does not come from himself or from his circumstances or even what he is able to do for the cause of Jesus. He, he looks outside the walls of his prison and sees that out there, other Christians are doing what needs to be done of proclaiming the message of Christ. And that doesn't bring him resentment, doesn't bring him bitterness, doesn't bring him frustration that he can't be out there with them. It gives him cause for rejoicing. This brings us to our our second point. Paul shows us that we can have joy, we can increase in our joy even when other Christians fall short. Look at verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
So what's going on here? So Paul knew that his imprisonment resulted in other Christians being more bold to speak the word without fear. But then here's the deal. Paul could look at those other Christians and see that they kind of broke down into two subgroups. One group is motivated to do that by goodwill, by love. Love for Paul, love for the gospel. They see that Paul is in prison. And you can imagine this group saying, we've got a man down. Paul's in prison. Let's pick up the torch. Let's keep running on his behalf. Let's encourage him by continuing to do the work that he was doing that he can't do right now. So that's one group of Christians. And praise God for Christians who responded this way to Paul's imprisonment. But there's another group of Christians. And Paul says that they are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 15, they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Verse 17, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul while he's in prison. And I I personally find this the most fascinating part of our text today. It appears that these are true, genuine, Jesus-following Christians who are preaching the real gospel. So elsewhere, we know Paul is not afraid to call out false teachers. He's not afraid to call out a false gospel. That's not what he does here. These are genuine Christian believers preaching the true gospel, but they're doing it with wrong motives. And more than that, there's, there's some sort of a, a subtle or maybe a not-so-subtle hostility towards the Apostle Paul. They're seizing this opportunity while Paul is in prison to rub salt in his wounds. So you can imagine this group saying, we've got a man down. Thank goodness. I never liked the way Paul did things anyway. You know, probably God let him be arrested because he wasn't doing it right. And now it's our turn. Let's show Paul how it's done. That's what's going on with this group. And I find this interesting. I find it instructive uh, at least three ways. Uh, For one, this shows us that it's possible for genuine Christians trusting in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, to preach the true gospel from a sinful heart. This means that having your gospel message right having your doctrine in order, having your soteriology all sorted out does not guarantee that you have a heart or a ministry that honors God. In fact, it's possible to do great harm to other Christians while preaching a right gospel. Paul was on the receiving end of this kind of harm to the point he says these people are actually trying to afflict him. Another insight we can gain here is that you ought not assume that the other professing Christian out there, whom you really don't like, who's definitely a jerk and a really unpleasant person, you ought not assume that they are some sort of a false Christian. That very well may be one of God's saints, a person for whom Christ died, who has believed and even proclaims the true gospel. You can't write off another person as a non-Christian just because you don't like them. A third insight, and the one we want to highlight today, is the way Paul responds to this particular group of Christians. So look at verse 18. What then? So it's a rhetorical question. What do we make of this? How should we respond? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You find that amazing? 
Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is a man consumed by a zeal for the gospel to be proclaimed. His every waking moment is driven by this passion to see Christ exalted. This is what drives him. It's what sets his priorities. It's what motivates him. It's what brings him satisfaction and joy. When the true gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, when this message is proclaimed, Paul rejoices, even if he isn't the one proclaiming it, even if he can't proclaim it the way that he would like to, even if it's being done with wrong motives, even if there's some level of personal disappointment or relational hurt, Christ is proclaimed, and Paul can rejoice. An obvious question for us, does this type of all-consuming zeal for the proclamation of Christ characterize your heart? Is this where you find your joy? Do you find yourself rejoicing any time you see the gospel advanced? Do you find your heart stirred with affection and rejoicing to the Lord any time Jesus is truly and rightly proclaimed even if it's at that other church you used to go to that you don't really care for anymore. Even if it's that pastor you blocked on Twitter because you find him so abrasive. Even if it's by somebody whose politics are all wrong or through someone else's story, not your own story. Does your heart rejoice when you see Christ proclaimed? Or do you just start poking holes in what they're doing and pointing out everything wrong with it and wish you could explain to them how they're doing it the wrong way. If that characterizes you, perhaps, perhaps you should consider if you love your own glory more than the glory of Christ. The point of this is is not to say that we can do whatever we want as long as we get the words of our gospel message right. Neither is the point to say that we shouldn't work to persuade others and challenge others when they're wrong or call others to greater godliness. Now, I think we can safely assume that given the opportunity, Paul would have spoken to these other Christians, preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, and he would have called them to repent. So much of his other New Testament writing is given to that type of work, right? That's not the point of these verses. That's not what he's doing here. Paul's showing us here, the greatest joy for him is knowing that Jesus is exalted and the gospel is advancing, and this is so real for him that he can rejoice even when other Christians disappoint him, even when they preach Christ imperfectly, even when they selfishly use the proclamation of the gospel to advance their own agenda and to throw darts at Paul. For those of us who are members here, Crawford Avenue, You know, we seek to be a church that faithfully proclaims Christ every week. And I think, by God's grace, in broad terms, I think that characterizes us. I think there are a number of things we do really well. I'm sure there are other things that we don't do as well. Every week there are ways that we all corporately fall short. There are ways that each of us individually will fail and disappoint another in the church from time to time. There are ways that I and the other elders fall short at times. No longer we all live together as a church family. In the case with any family, the more you, you see those weaknesses, the more you're aware of them. We are an imperfect church. 
do you tend to dwell on those things? Or when you look around at your church family, do you choose instead just to look right through the imperfections and the shortcomings and the weird little quirks and behind them see a church full of people who love Christ and who love the gospel and are working together to see his name advanced? And does that bring you joy? It will if you have a heart like the Apostle Paul. You know, later in this letter, in chapter 3, Paul will invite the Philippians to join in imitating his example. So what if we all imitated Paul in finding our joy in the proclamation of the gospel? When the exaltation of Jesus is our greatest priority, when it's our, our greatest source of joy, it will transform our marriages, our households, our friendships, It'll give new urgency to the way that we think about our non-Christian neighbors. It'll change the way we think about the nations. It'll change the way we think about Bible translation and church planning among unreached people groups. It'll change the way we spend our time and our money. It'll change the way we pray. We'll pray less and less with a list of things that we just want to make our life better. We'll pray more and more as Jesus taught us to. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. May your gospel advance. Thinking about life this way, where the the proclamation of Christ is the supreme concern, this changes everything. Paul shows us that we who are Christians can find joy and even increase in our joy. First of all, in our own suffering. Secondly, even when other Christians fall short. And now, third and finally, even when our own future seems bleak. Look at the last part of verse 18 down through verse 20. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul has, he's talked about the past. He can look back at what has happened to him and see how God has used it to advance the gospel. He's talked about the present, how he can rejoice when he looks out because he sees that other Christians are proclaiming the name of Christ. And then here in these verses, he turns his attention forward to the future he says that he will rejoice moving forward because he is confident that Christ will be honored in his situation no matter how his situation turns out. And to be clear, Paul is not in a great situation here. Humanly speaking, his future looks pretty dim. We don't know for sure if this was Paul's final imprisonment or not, but we know that eventually one of his imprisonments will result in his execution, in his death. So humanly speaking, Paul's future, as he wrote these words, was not great. Even still, we can see that this this singular passion that Paul has, the advance of the gospel, Christ being proclaimed, Christ being honored, this singular concern is so great that it controls how he thinks about even the unknowns of his own future, and even knowing that death may be right around the corner for him. Paul expresses confidence in the future. He he speaks of his eager expectation and hope. 
He invites the Philippians into his situation through their prayers. He says, as you all pray for me, so he's bringing them into the situation with them, making them part of it. As you all pray for me, and as the Holy Spirit empowers me, this situation that I'm in will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance for Paul might look like extended life, or deliverance for Paul might mean death. Either way, Paul wins. It's almost immaterial to him. Why does he win? Because what he wants more than anything is for attention to be put on Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants to exalt the name of Christ. He wants the gospel to be advanced. He wants other people to look at Jesus. And that happens if Paul lives. He gets to keep talking to his pagan captors about Christ. It happens if Paul dies. It will spread through the church and through Rome that this man was willing to die because he believes so strongly in the gospel of Jesus. Either way, Paul wins. He's found the secret to always having joy no matter what. The secret is to look for joy in something that will never fail and that cannot be defeated. When we look for joy in our relationships, our joy will fail as soon as the other person doesn't do what we want. When we look for joy in our comfort, our joy will fail as soon as sickness creeps in or the car breaks down. Look for joy in our kids. Our joy will fail the moment they don't do what we want them to do. But when we look for joy in Christ being proclaimed, that will never fail. It won't fail even when our life plan doesn't work out. It won't fail even when other Christians fall short. It won't fail even when we face our own uncertain futures, which at some point will include for each of us the reality of death. Earlier in the service, we prayed for uh, the family of Marty Smallwood, one of our church members uh, who died last week. Marty was in the hospital uh, the last couple of weeks, and a number of you were able to visit with her uh, able to talk with her on the phone, able to text with her in that time. And uh, it was just, it was really encouraging uh, to me and to the other elders to see, uh, see members of the church caring for one of our own in that way. Um, my wife, Dottie, was one of those who was able to visit Marty and then have follow-up conversations on text message. One of the things they discussed was the way that our relationship with the Lord tends to kind of have ups and downs over the years. Sometimes we sense that we are more faithfully walking with the Lord than at other times. So they talked about this reality, the the ups and downs of the Christian life. And Marty expressed that her own desire was to walk closely and faithfully with the Lord in whatever time she had left. One of her last text messages to Dottie, she just said very simply, I want God first place in my life, never to leave him again. I think Marty was expressing there something very much like what Paul is modeling in this passage today, a heart that loves God, a heart that loves his son, the Lord Jesus, and wants to walk closely with him and to see his name exalted, to see the good news of his salvation advanced. That's something that will give us joy. 
even in the final days of our life here on earth, whatever suffering we find ourselves in now, when this desire, when it characterizes our hearts, we can be confident, as Paul was here, that we will not be at all ashamed, but will have joy that lasts forever. Let's pray together. Father, we would be hopeless in our sin were it not for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the good news of what you have done for us in him. We praise you for it, and we pray that all of us would be growing every day in our love for you and our love for Christ and what he's done for us, and we pray that out of that would flow a passion to see the name of Christ exalted. We pray that that would be for us a source of joy, no matter the circumstances. We thank you that you are glorified when we find joy in you. We pray that you would grow us as a church in our joy as the name of Christ is exalted. We thank you that we can exalt his name even now as we take the Lord's Supper together. We pray in our Savior Jesus' name.